Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Rafa Sardina, and if you're not familiar with Rafa, Rafa is an 18-time Grammy and Latin Grammy-winning producer, engineer, and mixer. He has worked with some incredible artists over the years, everyone from D'Angelo, Stevie Wonder, John Legend, Michael Jackson, Lady Gaga, and so many, so many more. And in this conversation, we have an amazing chat about calibrating your ears and emotions for mixing. And what do I mean by that? Well, basically, we talk a lot about understanding your gear inside and out and knowing how the subtle differences between different plugins or different pieces of hardware can really make a big difference in the final sound that you're working on and how to manipulate that sound throughout a mix to create more movement and depth and emotion throughout your track. And Rafa has some amazing tips all about how he does that inside of his tracks. And we also talk about how to calibrate your personal emotions going into mixes or when you're feeling stuck, like when you have self-doubt that you're maybe not quite on the right path with your mix or you're not sure what to do to get it to that next level. You know, what steps should you be taking to calibrate your ears to make those right decisions and to make the changes that you need to make your mixes sound incredible. And again, Rafa has some amazing advice for this. And you can tell in this interview that he's very meticulous with his equipment and really honing in on his craft and his process. And I think it really shows in the work that he does because it's very well thought out. It's very well crafted. It's not a templated style of mix. And he shares a lot of great tips about how he accomplishes that inside of this interview. So with that said, let's just jump into it because I know that there's so much great stuff here for you to learn. Rafa Sardina, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going? Doing good. Great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. For people who might not know your background, how did you get into music and how did you get into production and mixing? Well, I got into music because I was, well, I am a musician, you know, and that was my first quest, you know, uh, to be a professional musician or, or at least, you know, uh, be able to stay with it and, and play every day. I'm, I play guitar and and that was my pursuit, really. I mean, to be a working musician. And from there, I was very lucky because I had an early experience when I was only 15, 16 years old, where I recorded an album with a band I was I was always with. And and that was my first studio experience. So that was the first time I was exposed to to the world of production or trying to to make a finished product, right? And it stick with me. It really stayed with me for a long time. I went to through four years of medical school in the process, but I never stopped making music, playing music, even recording music, because even the technical aspect of it really, you know, called me. It was it was a big call for me. You know, I I love engineering. I love you know what machines can do for you. <laughs> I love recording <laughs> the recording process. So that yeah, so that was the very very beginning of. Of of my career, let's say you know when I was very 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 young. Later on, I was very fortunate to get into a very well known recording studio in Los Angeles called Ocean Way Recording, and that's where I really cut my teeth in my very very late teenage years or when I was turning twenty years old or twenty one something like that, and and that's where I. Yeah, really cut my teeth. It was a great, great school for me because they had nine studios in total and you will be working in every single one of them and you will learn every possible situation you know, in terms of acoustics, in terms of recording techniques, in terms of you know styles of making music. So it was a very diverse kind of, kind of a studio. That's amazing. When you got that job in, at Ocean Way, was it... Just as like an intern to start, or did you just were you like did you work your way into a position right away? Actually, I think I was the first intern ever at Ocean Way because they never believed in the concept of internships, so they never had any interns, and they only hire either runners, you know, for very very low positions, you know. With it was always a big unknown, right? To be a runner, you never knew what 
uh, what you could become or if you were going to be accepted as an assistant. And they, they just hire assistants directly. And they had a very, very high standard. I remember they were hiring season engineers as assistants. Mm. People who wanted to move to LA who had been successful in other places. For example, one time, uh, one of the assistants was a princess recording engineer for quite a few albums. And oh, he wow. became an assistant after having an engineering career. So it was a, it was a very sought after a facility and place to launch your career. And I think that's why a lot of people, you know, were so open to, to take this kind of assistant position at the studio. But yeah, that, that was pretty much it. And I was very lucky again that I became an intern. That's amazing. It's, it's funny because you said that they don't really believe or they didn't believe in the intern system before that. And I feel like these days it's it's kind of the traditional story, right? That like every studio has interns and you know, all these people are working for free. Um, obviously, it worked out in your favor. You, you got a great position. You got to meet a lot of great engineers. You learned a lot. Um, what's your philosophy on like interning these days? Do you, do you believe that that's still the best way to, to work your way into the industry? I think it's one of the very few ways to get into into the industry, actually, uh, because uh, big studios are not hiring like they used to. They don't have that many open positions, you know, uh, for assistant engineers or even for runners. Um, it is a completely different environment these days. Um, a lot of the studios uh, that we work on uh, are actually, for the most part, uh, home studios. Mm -hmm. And that has completely shifted the way uh, the way we work, the way people get hired. It has shifted the whole the whole industry. So I think it is very important that you find a good internship position, you know, to to launch your your career, and not only to launch your career, to stay learning. Because even if you get out of a very very prestigious or a very good program. Let's face it, you don't know, <laughs> let me say bluntly, you don't know shit. Nobody knows shit. I don't know shit. At the, even at this point <laughs> in my career, I don't know. I still don't know shit. It, the reality is that this is the kind of job where you have to stay learning every day because we're talking about something very, very creative. Even if you are just doing the engineering, it, this is something very creative. It's like a, it, it is a moving target and styles change. Um, aesthetics change constantly in the industry uh, and even your own personal style changes. The way you enjoy music, the way you enjoy frequencies, the way you enjoy arrangements, musical arrangements, they should actually change. I think that they should never stay the same. Uh, and I think that they na naturally do. So that also forces you to relearn what you think you know. Of course. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like the popular music out there, whether you listen to popular music or not, it, it's all music is always changing and evolving as time goes on. And we certainly don't listen. Now, we, we certainly have listened to different styles of music as we get older than we than we were when we were younger. You know, so you're you're right. Your tastes are constantly evolving. And as the um, kind of the modern expectation of music changes, you know, and what it's what modern music sounds like. You 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 do constantly need to continue to learn how to how to get that sound. Otherwise, you're just kind of pigeonholing yourself into this old sound that some people might or might not want, and and that's going to just make it harder for you to make a living in this industry. I think. And I think there is value to knowing both things, but you definitely need to yeah move along yeah with the changes for sure. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely agree that I, I think it's really important to understand how music was made. And to get that older sound, because there's always going to be people who are like, yeah, let's let's have this modern sound. But then we like, you know, maybe we want these like Led Zeppelin types of drums or something like that, you know, and it's like, OK, well, that that requires a different production style than what most people are used to these days. And then so you have to you have to constantly just be learning. And the more you learn about these different techniques, whether they're current or not, it just it's just another tool in your toolbox so that when someone asks you for that, you've got it. You're ready with it. Right. Absolutely. And styles of music also make a comeback. Cyclically, they come back, totally. you know, <laughs> and it's happening right now. <laughs> it happens all the time. It happens in every decade. You know, there is always a, a comeback of spe specific aesthetics, you know, of music or 
how, you know, the kind of sounds that we used, you know, we call it re retro, right? Every time something like that happens, oh, that sounds retro. You know, it's just uh, um, reinventing an existing. Yeah, you can hear it with like, um, like even like Bruno Mars and stuff like that. Like Bruno Mars is like totally bringing back this old soul sound and stuff like that. That like Absolutely. sounds totally different than music not, that we're used to in the last like five years, you know? So um, yeah. it, it's definitely refreshing to hear these kind of throwback sounds and, and, uh, it, it it always becomes like it, it's it's refreshing to hear it, you know. No, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So so you got this job at Ocean Way and you were interning. Obviously, you like you said there was nine studios, so you would see a lot of different artists coming through, and you would get to work on a lot of different projects. And I feel like when I looked at your discography, your discography has a wide range of genres that you've worked with. You've done everything from rock, dance, rap classical and so much more so i'm assuming that you learned a lot of this stuff while working at ocean way and being exposed to all this kind of stuff right yeah absolutely how important is it to you to have diversity in the music that you work on it was a personal choice because i could have specialized at any point in my career you know there was a time in my career where i was just doing more of the rock oriented type of music then there was a point where i was doing a uh, hip-hop and other, you know, uh, R&B music. And then there, there was a time when I started doing Latin music also, you know. And I could have specialized at any point in my career, but that was never my desire. You know, that was never my ambition. I always love the new discoveries in terms of aesthetics, in terms of music. So I always embrace that. Uh, other people don't. Maybe they don't feel comfortable, you know, with change or, or with the challenge. But I always sought after the challenge. I, I was always looking for the new challenge. So the, when they would tell me, oh, could you, you know, they would offer me like a soul type of album, you know, like, uh, you name it, whichever artist it might be. I always was pretty pretty quick at saying, yes, I'm, I will be, I'm interested in this. <laughs> you know, I think I can, I can contribute to this, you know. And there's another aspect that I discovered over the years. And it's the fact that a lot of artists benefit from your, you know, cross-reference knowledge of mm -hmm. other types of music. It always adds something special to their own project because you're adding elements that are unexpected um, for them, you know, and it's always good to have sort of like these rough edges in a way, you know, it creates this kind of like rough edges. For example, when I start working, even producing opera, who will have guessed, right? I'm producing an opera. Anything is possible. It's all about um, emotions. Do you know how you interpret emotions, even as a producer or as an engineer and how you reflect on them and what kind of output you come out with after this reflection. So. I think that even producing opera, I had my own say about the aesthetic of the singing, the ambience, you know, how it, it works with the orchestral arrangement. So I think that music is music. So it comes down to that. Music is music. And in order to be able to work on any of these styles, you need to like it. You need to like the music, number one. You cannot just be totally foreign and, and expect it to become a contributor to the music without even enjoying the music. So I think that the first step step is always to, uh, to find the things that you like, get involved with them, and, and hopefully you're going to be a good, you know, addition to the, to the project. Yeah. I love your point there about how you can take from other genres and, and kind of offer a fresh perspective on a different one. And um, I agree with that. And I, I think that, it does also make you stand out compared to a lot of other engineers. You know, you're not just the person who's just pressing the buttons and said you actually have this like unique approach to it. And I think artists really respect that because they, they see you as not just a recording engineer. They see you as someone who understands like how sound works and really cares about this and, and is willing to try new things and experiment. And that opens their eyes yeah. to a lot of new things as well. Right. And, and early on, I saw it that way. I learned that from big engineers, you know, from, from very relevant engineers and producers, how they became another member of the band, if it was a band, or 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 an attachment to the artist. They really helped the artist 
fulfill their their vision, right? Or discover what the a better vision of the project could be. Because very often, you know, we go to the studio with a, a pretty empty canvas. We don't always go with a you know super pre-produced um, project, and especially back in the older days, that happened a lot. A lot of artists will get in the studio without much of an expectation. They didn't sometimes they didn't even have the songs. They were actually writing the songs in the studio. They were songwriting in the studio. They were working on the arrangements in the studio. That has changed, obviously. Uh, for economic reasons, you know, in order to become more efficient, you have to use your resources accordingly. So these days, uh, we're very careful about how we use the studio time. That's why I love the home studio environment uh, for those type of projects where the artist really requires the extra time and love. Uh, I love the scenarios where you have the luxury of ha- working in a home studio and you're not looking at the clock constantly thinking, oh my God, eh, we're running out of time. You know, we don't have six extra extra hours to consider, you know, further working on this song. I mean, we're done. We better cut it now or or we're not gonna record it. So I embrace that kind of that kind of scenario where you work part of the project in a home studio and the rest of the project, whatever is necessary in a commercial studio. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I guess it works both ways, right? Because sometimes people work or sometimes people thrive under pressure. And when they have those deadlines, it, it makes them work fast, right? No, I do thrive under pressure myself. For example, I do thrive under pressure, but there are other people who don't necessarily thrive under pressure or they don't have enough experience to calculate, you know, how they are going to perform, even under pressure or not pressure, but how they are going to be able to fulfill the commitment, right? If you have to deliver 14 songs to a record label, you have to deliver 14 songs to a record label. There's <laughs> no question about that. So, so yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's the reasoning behind my my comment, yeah. For sure, yeah. And and I, I, I think that some people definitely, like we said, some people thrive under pressure and other people choke under pressure as well, right? And so having that home studio environment where someone can get comfortable and have the time to, to you know, just explore things and try new sounds. Like sometimes that is a really great, uh, a great thing to have is just have that avail- availability to, to, you know, be flexible with your time and, and all that. So, um, that, very cool. Um, now in terms of working with different genres, obviously, you know, people have an expectation of what they expect certain genres to sound like these days. You know, they're used to hearing the same sort of styles of songs and same sort of production, that kind of stuff. How do you keep current with all of that? Listening to music. I love listening to music. I love, I love being inspired by music. You know, uh, even before my workday, <clears throat> very often what I do is just play music. And I play music and it doesn't have to be in a specific style. I just play random music or things that I get recommended and things that I have discovered by chance. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the top, you know, the top 50 or the top 20. Um, I listen to those too, but I do listen to a lot of other music because the trends come from the trenches. They don't come from, you know, as soon as something is already playing on radio, it's not that, you know, it's the current trend, but it's not the next trend anymore. And you're working on music that's not going to come out for another four weeks to four months to a year, even in some cases. So you have to you know, learn and and be, you have to constantly be fed by good things, you know, uh, good influences. And those good influences are not necessarily just what's playing right now on radio. I mean, that, that that's one of them, but there are so many more. So it's just a matter of being curious. You have to be very, very curious and listen to all of music. Yeah, I love that. Do you find that you, um, like, do you listen to music to start your day? Like, I know some people like to, before they start working on a mix, they like to calibrate their ears by listening to music. Do you, do you feel like you do that for yourself? Yeah, and it's not just calibrate your ears, calibrate your emotions. You know, in a way, you have to get in a specific type of zone. You have to really, I don't know, you have to connect with with your environment. And in order to connect with your environment, you have to, 
start feeling emotions, right? And I think that's what music, just the simple fact of listening to music does to you. You start connecting more with the specific factors that are important to music, right? Uh, with with the sound palette, you know, with the dynamics, with the emotion, you know, the interpretation, things like that. So once you get to work, uh, even if it's a, a different style of music that you're going to be working on, but as soon as you get to work, you're already kind of like, it's like seasoning, you know, the meat like three days before, you know, in <laughs> yeah. order to have a good, a great barbecue. It's the same kind of concept in a way. You are, you are seasoning yourself for the job at hand, which is going to happen very soon, you know. And, and as soon as you get to work, you're ready. People ask me very often, Oh, how do you inspire yourself? Um, how do you get, you know, go over not having a good day? If you want to become a professional, you cannot have bad days. Basically, you make every single day a good day. And a way of doing, making it a good day is by getting help from your best ally, which is music. Listening and getting inspired, and then you're good. And you make good out of it, you know, even if you have it having the most terrible day, you know, for personal reasons, you know, you make, you make good out of it. And it might actually even help with your personal, you know, problems. So that's <laughs> the way that. I approach it. I love that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we, we get in our own head about whatever is going on in life, you know, maybe sometimes it's, it's just your life in general. Sometimes we're in our head about the music that we're working on and whether we're doing the right job, you get imposter syndrome, all sorts of stuff can always get in your way. So, um, you know, I, I do think that there's just something, well, there's, there's so much positivity that can come from music and just, you know, like you said, like calibrating your emotions and, and helping you get back in line, um, and calibrating your ears too, and all, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah I love absolutely. that. Um, now, obviously, you you produce records, you mix records, and I've heard you say, and this maybe kind of ties into the calibrating your emotions thing and, and when you're having those tough days, I've heard you say before that you find that mixing other people's music is often easier than the, than mixing the music that you've produced yourself. And I'm curious to know, I'm wondering like if you can explain why you feel that way and how you, um, you know, how you calibrate yourself when, when you're having those days where, it, where, it's, where it's a little tough. Uh, uh, for example, you know, working on other people's music uh, allows you to be a little, you know, uh, allows you to be a little bit, I was going to say disrespectful, it, that's not the right <laughs> word, but you, it allows you to be a little bit more careless about things in a way. And that's a good thing. It's not bad. It's not a bad thing. I think that um, carelessness ties a lot with emotion and ties a lot with intuition. And the the biggest contribution that you can make to a project is to use your intuition and your, you know, that as a tool in order to potentiate, you know, the things that are really important about that song. What happens when you have been working on a project as a producer or as an engineer for a long time is that you have pretty much explored almost every or every option along the way. And what happens at the very end, you feel like this weird pressure about taking it even a step forward. And sometimes there is not, that step forward doesn't actually exist. You have already done what needed to be done. And you use all of your personal tools and to make it as good as it gets. And that's why mixing your own stuff sometimes it's so hard. That's what happens very often with artists. Artists get reach this point, you know, the, at the mixing stage where they start second-guessing themselves, thinking, well, but I really understood that during the mixing process, you can make it or break it, or you can take it two steps forward. I don't feel I'm taking it two steps forward. I don't know. I, there's something wrong with me, right? And very often, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that you need either a second opinion or a different vision, somebody to help you navigate what those extra steps might be, or you have actually already achieved it, and you don't need to do much more to it. So, but, but, but you are not certain about it. You don't know exactly what's, what's happening. That's where the confusion happens, mm -hmm. and it is very, very common. Yeah. 
Yeah, I definitely think that happens a lot, especially with people who are maybe in, I mean, it happens It happens at any stage of your career, really. But I think with people who are maybe newer to the recording world or new to mixing, like it's very easy to um, doubt your skill levels because, you know, you might be like, you might dismiss it. Oh, I've only been mixing for a year or two. And, you know, I don't know half the stuff that these other people know, that kind of thing. And so it can be very discouraging. Um, but you know, you kind of like you said at the beginning, you were saying like, oh, I don't know shit, right? Like we, we all still feel that way, even even years later into our career. And so so, yeah, it, it can definitely creep up and, and get in your way. So so what kind of things do you do then to get past that? Because that's where a lot of people get stuck and give up. You know, how do you what are you doing to continue on with a mix or to, to figure out what to do next when you're feeling stuck? I think it's very important not to feel too precious about what you have done, you know, with your work. You know, uh, you have to be very open to reassess everything you have done, no matter how much work you put into it. And that's where a lot of people also have a lot of difficulty, you know, reassessing that because they think, oh, I put so much work on this. I cannot just start from scratch. I can't just break it. And sometimes the key is to start from scratch to really deconstruct your work and start all over again. Do you know a very good friend of mine? He he was super funny, one of the greatest engineers ever, a journey, will always, you know, um, <laughs> make this funny comment about, you know, how his mixes usually go, right? And he will go like, he gets the gig, you know, he gets the to mix this project. He's super honored and happy that he has been, you know, offered to to do this project and then he gets to it, right? And he starts thinking like, wow, how do I get started? Uh, what's this song about? What's the project about? Uh, how do I go about this? Then he, you get started. And, and I think that's the best way to approach things. Just get started. Start doing something, right? Even if you are not sure what's going on, start doing something. So he will get started. He will start thinking, wow, this is hard, you know, how am I going to get this song to be, you know? blow out of the speakers and be great and so he will continue he will continue at, at some point he will go like oh god you know this is going great you know this sounding oh this is really vibing i mean i'm a genius you know that's that's your next <laughs> time oh this is freaking awesome then you take a break you come back to it and and you listen to the you go like oh crap this is awful i hate it do you know like and your whole world you know comes you know crashing down in your, you know, in front of you and you're going to, oh my God, what I'm going to do now? But again, you have to continue working and then you realize all of these things that we're experiencing as part of the emotional content that's necessary, you know, goes along the song, uh, you yourself as an individual, you know, interpreting that song and your work. And sometimes it's necessary. We We don't always need to be a hundred percent certain about things. Very often I tell the artists when they ask me, oh, but do you know how we're going to do this? And very often I'm like, I don't know how we're going to do this, but I do know that we're going to get to a great result because I trust my intuition and I trust that I'm going to have the tools to, you know, steer the boat and get to that. I'm going to be able to recognize when something great is happening which is the other mistake or the other thing that happens to many people. They play alone and at some point they cross paths with greatness, right? Something really, really great just happened and they are not able to recognize that moment and they let it go and continue working. And that's the, that's what, that's the story of music making, really. That's what happens every day in the studio, either recording, producing, or mixing, you know, missed opportunities. So a lot of what we do is to be very good at not missing opportunities, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so super important that, you know, to, you gave that example of like, you know, you're working on a song, you're like, this sounds freaking amazing. I think at that point, it's like, bounce out the mix, you know, just save a version of that there while you're excited. I always do. I always yeah. do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great, great advice. I always tell all of my, even people I'm collaborating with, with as soon as you, something hits you emotionally, do a bounce. 
bring the mix because you are not, otherwise you're going to second guess yourself for the rest of the day, the month or the year thinking, oh, but it doesn't feel the same way or I'm missing something. And very often if your intuition tells you that you're missing something, you're truly missing missing on something. Your intuition is actually pretty, pretty accurate. Um, obviously, sometimes we interpret things um, with a little bit of, of emotion and we're inaccurate in terms of how we interpret, you know, on how we we know what it was. But in terms of the overall emotion, we're pretty good at, at knowing. So I, I always say, and I do the same thing, as soon as I have something that is really grooving or, or I like a quality of it, I actually even describe the mix. I go like, boomy bass. Something happened with the bass, boomy, outrageously boomy or something, but it's cool. I print it and I call it boom, boomy bass. It's, it's some, some, some kind of a statement that you created, save it. And later on, you know, later in the day, you can go back to that, mi that mix and, and really see if you are missing on, on the opportunity. I love that. That's such a great tip because, yeah, we often just name our files, whatever, right? Like mix one, mix two, and then we forget what what it was about those mixes that we really liked. And so, um, yeah, when you can just look at your files and be like, oh, boomy bass, like that, that's what I loved about this one. Now my mix has like not enough bass. Like, let's revisit that. Let's see what we did there. You know, like, yeah. I think that's very inspirational and can definitely help you out. Um, and yeah, it kind of reminds me of, I'm going to butcher the story, but I remember hearing a story about uh, when they were mixing, I think it was Michael Jackson's Billie Jean or something like that. And he was very particular with his mixes and, you know, they, they did a mix and he'd be like, okay, cool. Let's save that one. Let's like, I want to change this. I want to change this. And in the end, they ended up with something like 98 different mixes of, of that song. And Quincy Jones, walk, Quincy Jones walks into the room and says like, let's hear the mix. And, you know, it, it doesn't sound that impressive when, when they listen back to it. And he's like, okay, cool. Play mix two. And they play mix two, and that's the one that like blows them away, right? And he's like, "Yeah, see, this was like the one where your intuition was telling you like mm -hmm. this sounded best, you know." Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I'd probably butcher that story there, but you know, I think it, the, the concept is is very much the important thing there, and uh, just really, you know, being inspired and trusting your intuition, trusting your gut, and, and using that to to tell you sometimes, okay, you're on the right path here, and maybe maybe you should leave it. I also always, you know, a number everything, you know, the Pro Tools sessions or Logic sessions, you know, as you, as you are working alone, you know, I have a numeric system, 1.1, 1 1.0, 1 1.1, 1 1.2, 1.3, and, and I name them, you know, 1.5, new piano, uh, and the name of the, maybe the pianist, you have replaced the piano with whoever, Matt Rollins, new Matt Rollins piano. So you know what's going going on and I actually I learned this system with Michael Jackson when I worked with with him always had a cross reference and it was chronological so the numeric system allows you to be chronological so you get to 1.9 and then you follow up with 2.0 2.1 2. so if you go to your old sessions folder they are actually chronologically accurate they follow the numeric system and you have sort of like a chronological log of what has been happening with the song, maybe for the past year. And Michael was notorious for that. He would work on songs for many years, not just a year, but maybe for three, four years. So he had a way of telling, oh, okay, we changed the string arrangement on this one with a different uh, keyboard arrangement. Ah, and you could spot it, you could find it. You could even retrieve those files if, if it was part of a Pro Tools session, which we were using back then. Uh, he was very advanced. Uh, at that time in the in the nineties, he was already using a lot of other than the uh, analog and digital machines like the Sony thirty three forty eight. He was also using Pro Tools to process a lot of stuff and edit a lot of stuff and then bounce it back to to the Sony digital machine. So yeah, it's a good system because it allows you not to think, and I think it's a key and important thing to remember. When I'm in the studio, I always tell all of my assistants, collaborators, let's not think. The moment you have to start thinking about, oh, where is that folder? Where is this part? Where is... I have assistant where everything is, you know, 
it's a logical system where everything is in a specific in a specific folders, so nobody has to ever think. I love that about anything. You know, it's kind of like self-explanatory. I can open a session from ten years ago, and I do understand it. Or I open the folder with all of the different files and even even musical arrangements. You know, PDFs or Finale files or Sibelius files or whatever. And I know which one is the final arrangement and why. It may, might be a previous arrangement that got changed. And, and you know, it has a date and, and sometimes even a description of why it changed. You know, you get the new one and say, like, new brass. Okay, you know, oh, we changed it because we rearranged the brass section of the song. Okay, you don't ever have to think. I think it's, it's super, super important. I love that. That's such a great tip because so many people forget about that and they only just work in the moment. But like, yeah, if you take a little bit of time to just map out a system, what could that look like? Once you start implementing that, it makes your life so much easier from there on. And you do it at the beginning of the project. You don't do it during the project. You already have a system, right? Mm. With the specific types of folders. And from that point on, it's just a matter of you typing, doing a save as and just typing two words or one word, you know, and you know, you know, 2.3 tambourine. I don't know, whatever it might be, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But. <laughs> I love that. That's such a great idea. Um, and that's definitely something that even for myself, I've, I've really noticed that more recently with, uh, I've been getting really into building macros. And, you know, when you build the macro that, makes the same exact same file structure with every every artist, you know, then it's it's the best because then like, you know, it's going to be consistent, you know, it's going to be named exactly the way you need it to. And, and there's there's so many ways to keep organized, but it just takes a little bit of preparation, but it really exactly. does go a long way once you've actually implemented it. Yeah, I love that. That's a great tip. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about ambience and depth in a mix, because I feel like that's something that you do extremely well. And I'm curious to know, like when it comes to creating ambience and creating size and depth in a mix, where do you typically begin with approaching your mixes? I think that the most important element of any mix is the center, actually. You know, and talk, you are talking about depth, dimension. You have to establish your center and your base early on. And you have to be very, very clear about it. You know, you have to be convinced, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the approach, that's what you're doing. Because me working on so many styles of music... Uh, that center and that the weight of that center in terms of volume and in terms of the uh, low frequency content changes a lot. You know, obviously going from one something very electronic to going something very acoustic where it has to be maybe the center has to be a little bit more uh, puffy and ambiguous, you know. So it changes a lot, but it helps you define everything else. Once you have defined the center, Obviously, you don't just work on the center element of it, but you, but you pay extra attention to it. For example, when I'm start, when I'm starting a mix, even if I start, with, you know, with the rhythm tracks, you know, like the rhythmic aspect of it, I always bring the vocal early on, or any other element that's very important. You know, if there's any other melodic element that is king to the song and is very relevant to the song, I mix it early on. And not just, I don't just open the track, I mix it. I even start imagining the kind of effects it's going to have and the kind of depth it's going to have and how it's going to change from the verse to the hook and change the effects for those parts and automate them. And you will think, oh, what a waste of time. I mean, you put all of this effort, it could even be hours of work, and you know you're going to have to change it over again as soon as you put in the extra guitars or this synth or any of these other elements. It is true, but it is not a waste of time. It allows you to know how much space you have and where that space sits. Mm. And if those effects, for example, for the vocal are so important to the concept of the song, you are going to make sure that none of the other elements step over those those effects, you know, don't don't cover up those effects. It's a dance. You change something, you keep changing what you already did. You change another thing, you change the kick, and then you have to change the vocal, the cue on the vocal, because you change the kick. And then at the same time, you have to change the bass, and then that synth that's doing something else, it doesn't, you don't agree to, you know, how it's 
opening the stereo. So it's a constant dance. And that's the other advice I'll give to people. And I, I, do, I go th- over this exercise with my own assistants because I want them to be great professionals and great mixers and great engineers. And when I tell them, okay, start working on a mix, and as soon as they lock into something, they have something grooving, from that point on, they hesitate to make any changes to it. And that's the that's not good. I think that we need to be in a mix. We need to be open to constant change, constant, constant change. So the moment you add this other piano part, you might have to change your drums and the effects on the drums and and even the spread on the drums. You know, you you were working with a very open, you know, spread out drums, and then you realize, oh, maybe it's more appropriate for them to be more monoish. Because then I can leave this space for the piano, for these notes happening here in the... So, and that allows you to create that kind of depth that we're talking about, other than just using specific techniques, right? Like like delays, even stereo, uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, plugins that affect your stereo and allow you to tilt the stuff in the mix in ways that we were not able to before. I mean, you could... Do some of these, but through very, very cumbersome processes. And we used to do it and experiment with a lot of this before any of these plugins existed. But now it's quite an amazing, it has become quite an amazing option to have a lot of these, you know, stereo spectrum changing plugins. And I use them all (laughs) because all of them sound different and all of them do a slightly different thing. And all of them have a different depth and height and spread and and yeah i think that now we're at that point where we almost even have like way too many tools and <laughs> and it takes a long time to learn them all but but yeah that's that's how i do it and obviously you know how you uh, arrange your f- frequencies in each one of the instruments and how they overlay on top of each other and in the stereo and in even if they are in the center, how through frequency you can make them have a different kind of proximity or depth, you know, mm-hmm. effect. So, yeah. But in order to do that, you also have to learn a little bit about acoustics or be aware of it. And that's going to help you a lot, you know, uh, imagine these concepts and apply them. Of course. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love how you you said you start with that center channel. And I mean, I, I just want to clarify because we were talking about how you do have to constantly be changing things in a mix. But it sounds like your process is kind of start with the center because those are usually the most important instruments. You kind of get your sounds going with those. And then as you add other elements, you're trying to retain that that original center sound that you had as much as possible. But then you're kind of prioritizing from there. It's, it sounded like you're kind of uh, prioritizing from there as you add elements on the side, like, hey, what's the next next most important thing? Is, is that kind of right there? or? Yeah, but but I'm never too precious about, about it. I mean, I start that way, but if obviously anything anything could change, you know? I mean, you have this, you know, something happens, you know? You imagine... Uh, you know, you bring up another instrument and you imagine what it could be doing, you know, combined with that center. And then you might have to change that center to leave room for for this other idea. So it's basically, a, a, you come out with all of these ideas along, you know, during the mix. And it's some kind of like idea management, <laughs> you know, process, you know, you have to really see which one is more important. And which one actually makes you feel more? You know, it's all about emotions at the end of the day, right? So you have to be very intuitive about it and and really say like, okay, that might sound cool, but this makes me feel more. Gotcha. And that happens a lot too. And it's very hard to dismiss something that you know sounds awesome, but might not, not be the right thing for the song because the other idea actually makes you feel more. So it's that kind of management of ideas, like I said, you know, which is the hardest. For sure. No, I, I definitely understand that. It makes so much sense to to focus on, you know, that emotional feeling that you're feeling. And um, yeah. So when you're starting a mix, do you start with everything 
completely at zero, like completely like quiet, and then you just bring in one element at a time? Or because I know some people will like to start up with like a little bit of a rough mix, and then they focus only on the center channel or something like that. So do you do you start just like one element at a time, or no? Very often I just bring it, bring all of it on. You know, I just bring everything on, and I just do like a quick balance. You know, quickly I rebalance things, and and I yeah, and I really evaluate what's the most important part of the song to start with. It doesn't necessarily have to be the hook, but maybe you know what the hook is going to be like, but you have to maybe work on the pre-chorus in order to set up you know, the mood for the, for the hook, right? For the chorus. So that's a very personal thing that you have to evaluate. Okay, where do I start uh, and why? Do I establish you know, the drum sound for the hook? Or, or maybe there's no drums, this is the beat, or... Yeah, it, it really is an open canvas in terms of your your decision-making process. Um, you need to prioritize. And, and if you don't know, like I, I mentioned earlier, you have to get started somewhere. Just go. Just mm-hmm. go, you know. <laughs> I I really like that example that you gave there of if you're focusing on the hook that sometimes you need to focus on the part before the hook. You know, that that's such a important lesson to learn because yeah, it's it's not just about focusing on the one instrument. It's sometimes it's about like everything before that to make that impact and and that really goes a long way. So that was a definitely a, a great takeaway from that I took out of that. Um yeah, thank you for that. Um Another thing that you kind of talked about a little bit was you'd mentioned that when you're working on the center channel, you typically might start using some automation and that kind of stuff. And your mixes have a lot of movement in them. And I get, you know, this kind of ties back to what we were just talking about, about the focusing on the pre-chorus so that you can make the chorus bigger and that kind of thing. Um, Your mixes have a lot of movement to them. And I know that automation plays a really big role in your process. And I've heard you say that you tend to add automation fairly early in a mix instead of waiting till the end. And we were just talking about that. Why is it that you choose to automate your tracks early in the process? Because some people just feel like that's kind of like you get your rough balance going, you get all your clarity, and then then you add that that other stuff later. So why, why is it that you choose to add it so early? Uh, because for me, uh, for example, the only way to, to really establish um, statically establish, you know, a balance in each section of the mix, very often comes with um, the use, the hard use of dynamics, right? Of not dynamics, of you know, compressors, limiters, and such on. And for me, the use of those um, processes is tied more to tonal balance more than to dynamic. I use 80% of the time, I use dynamics, I use compressors, limiters to change the tone and the perception of an instrument, even even the the movement of the instrument in terms of how it feels in the song with the beat. You know, you you are constantly changing the attack and release of those instruments. And by doing so, you change the bounce of the mix. You change the way that instrument plays, you know, musically speaking, how it plays into the song. So I use those elements, compressors and limiters, to change more the tonal balance and that kind of time balance in terms of the timing of the instrument in the mix. And not necessarily just to control the dynamics of that instrument, but to control other elements of that instrument, those two other elements of the instrument. So that forces me very often because I'm trying to achieve that tone, right? Through the plugin or through the hardware. I'm not trying to control necessarily that instrument, but I'm trying to do something else. Sometimes I even have to give extra dynamics to the attacks of that instrument, to the attack of that instrument after the fact. I have, after I have applied the compression, because I've done too much, but maybe it is what I needed to do to accomplish that tone. But now I'm forced to automate, to bring it back, to recover that in some other way. Same with vocals. It happens a lot with vocals too. So it's a matter, it's an, an aesthetic thing. So you're trying to achieve something aesthetically, and at the same time, you are affecting in 
in ways that might not be exactly what you want, and then you automate. And the other way around, sometimes you want to control the instrument with such purity that you don't want to have so much compression or so much limiting, and you have to do it manually with your automation. Yeah, and to automation to me is the equivalent of musical interpretation. You are modifying, uh, you're changing a lot of the emotional content of that specific instrument by just modifying, changing the volume of that instrument. And it's not just the volume, the panning too. You start looking for extra space with a slight movement in the panning. When some other instrument comes into the occasion, that another instrument, you know, pans slightly to a different different place. You might not be able to tell, but you're leaving enough space for this new up and come, you know, new oncoming instrument. And then it goes away and it goes back. So that's where that's why I think I create so much movement because I'm looking for this for this shared space to work between all of the different instruments. And and sometimes you want just the opposite. You just want everything to be in the same place, like <laughs> really rocking. And so again, yeah, it's a very personal statement that you are making, right? But in terms of the automation, yeah. And I'm not afraid of automating and further automating and further automating. Do you automate and then it doesn't work anymore because I raise the bass or the new vocal comes in, a, a vocal response on this side of the mix and I like it there. And then I'm forced to automate that guitar all over again. So, yeah, I love that. That's such a great answer because I think a lot of people really focus only on volume automation. But you're so right that, like, when you start getting into compressors and all these other tools and automating your plugins, you can really change the sound from section to section and and yeah. really get creative with it. Um, obviously, yeah, it's it's going to be more time consuming to do it that way. But in the end, if it's giving you the sound you want and you're really you know, analyzing those those little details of like how the attack of the drums hit or guitar or whatever in different sections, like you can create a lot of movement in your track and put things closer and further just, you know, by playing with attack and release speeds and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I love that. that. That's such a, a really interesting approach to, to movement. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, that ties into our earlier question about depth because you can make things sound a little softer and, and make them feel further back in the room just by automating those kind of features on a compressor. Yeah. So, yeah. And even automating, yeah, I love those things, you know, automating, you know, the attack, the release, uh, and even automating, you know, uh, uh, frequencies, you know, with with EQ, you know, you want something to go farther away, you know, automate some of the high end and the mids, and then all of a sudden that instrument, you know, it starts going farther away from you and you add that, you add some delay to that, uh, even if you don't hear it, but you add some delay and all of a sudden it's stretching out farther away from you. So you start like using all of these techniques, but in a combined kind of way, you start mm -hmm. to imagine how things can flex in front of you, even the height in terms of uh, facing, you know, that you know allows you to bring some height to the mix or, or, or you know, the spread of the mix, you know. so. Yeah, now, now there are so many new tools that allow you to do that even with single plugins. Before, it used to be like a combination of five different things simultaneously, and you'll run out of, out of resources very easily, right? Yeah. You'll be in the studio and go like, oh my <laughs> God. People ask, actually, that's one of the things that people ask me the most. Oh, this is outrageous. Why did, you know, all, you know, older, you know, top class studios have like 100 input SSL consoles and you know like wh why would you ever need a hundred you will need actually a hundred to accomplish these kind of ideas <laughs> because then you will dedicate just four channels four extra channels to to do this kind of movement and facing with the base just for the base all of a sudden you will be using five channels uh, you wanted to do accomplish some of these you know you know things with movement and facing and whatnot. You you will waste another twelve channels doing <laughs> some of this stuff. And so yeah, that's how we ended up using so many channels. And thanks God, now we have you know <laughs> a lot of channels in the box and a lot of possibilities. And plugins can do so much. Absolutely, I, I love that. I love that. 
Um, one thing I did want to ask you about, uh, after having watched a couple of videos of you going through mixes, one thing that I did notice that you frequently do is you'll often have different types of EQs on a single signal chain. And, you know, some people will just say like, oh, just have one EQ on there. That's all you need, you know, and, and some people don't, some people are just like EQ is EQ, you know, there's no difference, but you, you're, you're very conscious of the fact that you, you'll be like, oh, I want to try this EQ on this and then I'll add this for the top end or that kind of thing. I'm curious to know, like, what is it that you like about these different types of EQ and like, how do you decide which EQs to use for certain applications? Oh, EQs are, that's an immense world, you know, the world of <laughs> EQ. And I was very lucky that I went through all of the classic EQs and how different they were. You know, a GML EQ is so different from even from a Sontek, which comes from the same uh, father, right? <laughs> but uh, a Trident EQ is so different from a Helios and from a Focusrite and from a Neve and from, I mean, you name it. And I have I have a little bit of everything here in my racks, right? It's like <laughs> I love the history of, of EQs, compressors, and, and whatnot. But I have them for a reason because I fell in love with each one of those EQs in a specific frequency ranges. For example, what a Helios does on that 10K upper frequency, and especially if you bump the preamp and saturate the EQ, it's amazing. It opens something very, very special, you know. And so that's why I use different EQs because sometimes I will use the EQ, a specific EQ just for the low end. And I use another one just for the high end or for the mids. For example, what a Motown type of EQ or a Langevin it will do in your mid range, 1K, 1.6K, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. It is a sound by itself. It is a sound. It's like a trademark type of sound. It does something very, very special that no other EQ does, not even an if, not even a... It, and it doesn't have to do with the quality of the EQ. It has to do with the um, qualities of the EQ, you know, with how it was designed, you know, even flaws. Some of these classic EQs have some kind of flaw that is special. It's a very special flaw. And you start creating this database of sounds in your head. I have the sounds in my head, basically. I imagine what something will do to this guitar or to this vocal from previous experience. I've used it so many times and I go like, oh God, if I apply this mid-range to the vocal, it's gonna, that's what, you know, it's gonna be great. That's what I'm looking for. So you start using EQs just for those specific qualities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's a really good point that you brought up too. That like you know, it's just some sometimes it's like the flaws of the units themselves that really give it this character. Because a lot of people would think you know uh, a three dB boost at one k with a Q setting of one is like the exact same on every EQ. But you're right. Like when you think of the design of these different devices and how all the components that go into them play a role, like it, it is going to change the sound. So what type of, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to learn these differences between different plugins or different hardware? Like where where should someone start to to hear these differences? Just by the simple fact of a simple act of compare, comparing, setting them up in the in the same, you know, for example, duplicate your track so that you don't have to so you can do a quick A B, you know, by muting and muting or soloing one or one of the two or the three or the four. But do do that, and especially do do it in something that's going to be very relevant and significant, you know, in your mix. For example, the vocal, and make four copies of the vocal track, and put a different type of EQ in each one of them, and apply the same frequency, you know, in each one of the four, and you are going to start learning. You are going to start gathering amazing information. You are actually going to be in awe at you know, how different it, it makes you feel from one EQ to the other. And it doesn't, need, it doesn't mean that one EQ is better. It might be the winner for this specific situation, for this specific track and this specific song. But you start learning, you know, the differences. And you start thinking, oh, when I EQ with this one at 1K, even though the bandwidth says this, I hear much more. It's very different. You know, the bandwidth is very different from this other one. It's like outrageously different. What's going on? And 
you might not even like it, but you learn. You learn a lot of information. Same thing with compressors, you know. And very often, we don't need to know it all. We need to try things and have that be very, you know, be very, very quick and bright at picking our winners. Mm-hmm. We have to, we have to be good. Uh, we have to be very decisive when we're learning to don't be, don't be hesitant about it. You know, pick your, pick your winners quickly and move on. And, <laughs> and you're going to have another opportunity, you know, in, in a week to try it again. And yeah, sometimes you have to just be willing to, uh, to make mistakes, I suppose, you know, to, to learn a yeah. lesson. Right. I, I love that. Do you, do you like to this day, do you still find yourself spending time to, learn your equipment or are you just so busy with work that you're just doing it as you go with all your different projects? No, no, I'm learning all the time. I'm evaluating new plugins every week. That's awesome. And new gear, not just plugins and hardware every week. That's great. And new speakers and new this and new that and (laughs) everything, everything. Obviously I have help. I have my assistants who also helped with some of it, you know, and they, sometimes they even pre-evaluate things for me uh, so that, I don't have to go through the learning curve of things. They can actually explain to me. They might spend a couple of hours, you know, figuring something out and they can explain to me in two, in two minutes or in a minute. Check this out because when you do this and there, it interacts with this other um, control of the plugin and then it does this and changes the law. And I'm like, okay. So I can move quickly uh, at learning these, these things. And then either adapt them in my system or I just dismiss them. But at least, you know, I give them an opportunity and and I have a chance to, you know, to get better at what I do. That's great. Uh, yeah, I think it's so important for people to spend the time to understand their gear. It's like, you know, I always, I always find it funny whenever I open up my plugins folders and, you know, look at my dynamic section and I have like, 15 different 1176 plugins and it's like you know how, how different are all of these you know like why do i always get <laughs> the same ones and you know if you just spend the time to actually like like you said go through that exercise of listening to the differences sometimes you'll be amazed at how different they are and how quickly you can get a, a result when you know the right one to pick right so it, it yeah it's definitely a good exercise to go through um everyone everyone should be doing that with their their gear yeah i love that um so last question i have for you then is obviously it's just from hearing you talk about all this stuff today, it seems like you're very you're very thorough with picking the the right gear, uh, automating things. Like you, you're very conscious of the decisions you're making along the way. How long does it typically take you to finish a mix? Depends on the type of mix. For example, I'm working on something orchestral. I could be doing two, three mixes a day. I'm doing on a pop. I'm working on a pop track. It's usually a day per mix, but it could be something very complicated with tons of uh, little elements and it could be more than more than a day it could be longer than a day but typically i would say that a day a mix is sort of like the standard or the and yeah if i'm mixing a just project i could be mixing you know 12 tracks in two days yeah so it, it varies a lot but in general terms if it's something like pop oriented or more f- you know, modern music, it will be closer to a day a mix or a little bit longer. Yeah, that makes sense because then you have plenty of time to uh, to experiment, like like we were talking about there, and to find the right tools for the job. So yeah, that's awesome, awesome. Well, Rafa, I don't want to take up more of your time. If people want to learn more about you, or maybe follow you online, or maybe even work with you, what what are the best ways for them to do that? Well, I do have a webpage. It's rafasardina.com. and yeah, that's that's I would say the best way to yeah to get in touch with me and yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely add that in the show notes too. So people have that link. Perfect. Well, thank you again for, for being on. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. I really enjoy it. So that was my interview with Rafa Sardina and I really enjoyed that conversation. I thought it was really interesting and I love that there were some questions that I asked where I totally expected him to 
have a completely different answer for. And I really enjoyed the perspective that he gave on things, especially when it came to things like creating depth. You know, most people, when they talk about depth, they expect to hear about using reverbs and delays. But I like how he kept things really simple about just focusing on the center channel and how that's such a big part of his process. And then how he uses automation to achieve that by making things sound further back in the mix with either EQ or compression and that kind of stuff. I just thought that was really interesting. Um, And it wasn't just your typical, you know, add reverb or add delay, that kind of thing. Uh, So you could tell that like he's really thought out his process. And he, he did mention in the interview that it really helps to understand acoustics. And when you understand the science of acoustics and how things work and how frequencies change as things become closer or further away or spread off to the sides, once you understand that stuff, it really allows you to manipulate your plugins and your hardware to get the sound that you want. And you don't have to always rely on the quote-unquote traditional way of doing things. It can really give you a lot more customization and a lot more flexibility in your tracks. And, you know, if you listen to any of Rafa's mixes, they're incredible and they have so much movement to them. And I think just hearing how he approaches his mixes here, it makes a lot of sense. And it really helps to explain how he's able to get his mixes to sound so big and full and exciting. So I hope that you found that just as mind-blowing as I did and you got a ton of great information out of it because, yeah, it was a great episode and we've got way more episodes like this lined up. So if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, definitely make sure to subscribe. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live on Wednesday mornings. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com If you're not sure of what to be doing with your mixes, if you're feeling stuck, like we talked about in this interview here, if you're feeling stuck with your tracks, not knowing how to use the tools or what steps to be taking to get your ideas to come out of your head and out of your speakers, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com because on that website, there are a ton of great resources designed to help you out. And one resource that I want to point you to is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I wrote a few years ago that became an Amazon number one seller that shows you the entire process of mixing from beginning to end, walking you through the thought process of how to analyze your tracks and understand how to use the tools to get the sounds that you want and how to manipulate sounds to make things sound closer or further or have way more punch or attack and that kind of stuff. All the stuff that we talked about in this episode here. So if you are interested in learning more about that, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com and that is where you can get the Mixing Mindset book. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. I appreciate it and can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.